Welcome to episode 17 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now today we are having a conversation that I've been looking forward to for a while now with your friend Kyle Harrison. Now Kyle is a general partner at Contrary, a venture firm backing some of the boldest entrepreneurs of our time. Since inception in 2018, their portfolio includes the likes of Andril, DoorDash, Ramp, and Synthesis. And Kyle joined Contrary in May this year to co-found Contrary's latest stage practice. Prior to Contrary, Kyle was a partner at Index Ventures, one of the leading venture firms of the last decade. Before Index, Kyle was a growth investor at TCV and then Kochu Management, investing in the likes of GitLab, Sneak, and Snowflake. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Let's dive right in. So when I was preparing for this podcast, I was trawling through the portfolio ideas section of your website where your digital garden of big ideas is stored. And something that really stood out was the art of investing, you know, taking this finite resource or resources, I should say, time, energy, money, attention, and employing them to optimize a given outcome. Um, Now, you said that you're fascinated by the first principles of what it means to simultaneously learn to become a great investor while also reinventing that art form. I'd love to hear how you stumbled across this philosophy and how it's ultimately developed from your early days growth investing with TCV to now a general partner at Contrary. Yeah, so... For me, the the way that I got introduced to venture has kind of shaped a lot of the way that I've thought about the philosophy. And so when I have thought about, you know, I look back to my early days, I actually, I started a company years and years ago. I, I like to joke that I started a creator marketplace before it was cool. Um, I was a videographer and <clears throat> I, uh, I had too many clients at the time. And so I started farming them out to other creatives and eventually expanded to a bunch of other creatives. And so I sort of had this army, I think at the height, it was, you know, 50 or 60 videographers, photographers, graphic designers. And I was basically acting as a business in a box for these folks. So I was helping them think about their website. I was helping them think about their business development and marketing and, and everything. And when I sold that company, that was the first time I got introduced to, to venture capital. Um, and the, <clears throat> the first time that I had venture described to me, the idea that resonated with me was that I had had all these creatives and I had been this sort of resource for them. And I really, I appreciate that idea. And then I actually, there was a story, um, an episode of the West Wing, uh, a show, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a political show in the U S and basically it's a conversation, um, between the president and his chief of staff. And, and the president says to the chief of staff is, you know, the difference between me and you is that I want to be the guy, the guy in the chair, the person you know driving the ship. You want to be the guy that the guy counts on. Um, and for me, the way that I think about venture is that I want to be that person that, that founders can rely on. And not coming from a technical background, I mean, I started a company, I built a crappy website, but I didn't have as, as technical of a background. When I started thinking about what was the most valuable thing that I could do for founders, it really was effectively honing my craft and, and studying venture and understanding what the most effective venture investors had in common, what they did, how helpful they could be, and, and things like that. And that was what sort of turned me on to this philosophy of really understanding what a good investor is. And, and a good investor and a good founder are not the same thing. And so it really was on me to understand what a good investor was. 
Yeah, that's tremendous. And, you know, it's it's really, well, in, in, in one essence, unique in that, look, you have sat at both sides of the table being an investor and at the beginning of your career, a founder. How has your experiences on each side helped shape your ability to locate the incredible founders of the future? So for me, when I look at uh, founders and have these conversations, the biggest thing for me that I look for is um, I have this concept that I talk about where I think about sort of a decentralized brain, right, where I can't be an expert on every possible area that I would want to be an expert on. But when I look at founders, I, I typically am looking for the person where if I could call anybody, is this the person that I would call about this specific topic or area or, or anything like that? And so that's the most common thing where I'm, I'm trying to find folks who are maniacally obsessed with the thing that they're tackling rather than sort of a casual participant in it. They want to shape the future of this specific industry and space and how things are done and make it more efficient and, and things like that. And, and that comes from, as a founder, I wanted to be as obsessive and focused as I possibly could. As an investor, the reason that I focus on that is because when you find a founder who is maniacally obsessed with that category, that area, you're never going to know more than them. And your job is not to be, I and mean, if you know more about a specific industry than the founders that you're backing, that's probably not a great thing. Um, as an investor, my focus is more on, first, they have to have that maniacal passion. And then for me, I have to understand the walls and barriers that stand in their way to being able to be even more ambitious and even more aggressive, and then helping to break down those walls. Yeah, I like that you mentioned a decentralized brain there. That's definitely something that I've been paying a lot more attention to, at least finding people who you know within your network who can best answer any problems that either you face or also a friend faces. And I think, you know, pointing a given individual in the right direction to really see a, a direct solution is, is totally beneficial to both parties. So I can definitely get behind that. You spent the better part of seven years across Index, Kochu, and TCV focusing on working with founders later on in their journeys. What fundamentally interests you about this stage within the growth cycle, at least within the growth life cycle, Kyle? So for me, when I started my career, I started in, I mean, I was doing, as a founder, I was doing angel, some small angel investing and then my sort of venture education was at a seed fund in Utah uh, where I ran my company called Kickstart Seed Fund. So that was my sort of introduction into venture. The reason that I pushed further towards growth and joined TCV was because what I saw my strength, my skill set as was being able to identify complexity across a bunch of different functional areas and finding the sort of key patterns uh, in those functional areas and then and using that to sort of unblock any of the issues that folks were having. And that just lent itself more towards growth, right? When you're a founder and it's basically just you and your co-founder and it's pretty early and you're ideating and iterating and, and sort of figuring out where to play, it's a very specific skill set. Um, for me, the thing I was most excited about and felt like I was best at was actually not the early day. I mean, even in my own company, I sort of stumbled into this thing, doing it myself, and then built it into sort of a crappy website and, and kind of ran at it. The thing that I really enjoyed was more of that operational complexity. And so when I think about within sales, within marketing, within engineering, within product, how do you identify the very best um, behaviors and playbooks and what does good look like and things like that? And when I when I stepped back and appreciated that fact that that was what I was most interested in was understanding that operational complexity. 
more of that exists, the later a company is in its life. And so I sort of went on a discovery journey where, I mean, TCB was very late stage. Most of what I was doing was sort of pre-IPO investments. And I've sort of, uh, I would say, paired my way back. Like I'm today, and even an index, I wouldn't consider myself a, like a, I don't know, there's a lot of vernacular in terms of like what is and isn't like a growth investor, venture investor, whatever. But most of my focus for the last, call it, you know, four-ish years has been mostly on sort of series B, series C founders that I would describe as it's not, you know, pre-IPO where you have 100 plus employees and it's very late stage and you're thinking about an IPO. Um, it's more so in that vein of the you've, sort of product market fit is new. Like you've just gotten to that point where things really feel like they're working from a product perspective. And now it's a question of how do you scale this organization? How do you get the right people in place? How do you put the right playbooks into motion and, and things like that? That's the area where I have most focused over the last few years. Yeah, I like how early on you immediately recognized that you just weren't passionate about coming in from such an early stage, more so looking at it from an operational standpoint and later on within that life cycle. How important is it for an investor to recognize that within their career? Is, is that very much a function of the reps doing doing deals? Or, and at least why why is it important that a given individual recognizes that zone of genius where they interplay what they're interested in with ultimately where they're good at. I wrote about this a little bit in my, um, a few of the posts that I've made in terms of people understanding their own value proposition. I, you know, typically I'm writing about it in relation to specific firms strategy, but I think the principle extends to individual investors as well. Understanding what your value proposition as a, um, as an investor can be to founders. I think that's that's critical. And I think that there is a component of what are you actually good at? Like what skills and capabilities do you have? And honestly, a lot of my value as an investor has come from just, to your point, doing the reps, spending years and years looking at hundreds of deals and and seeing different companies, you know, scale at different points in time. All that data circulates to, you know, some of the most valuable conversations that I have with founders when they appreciate what I have to say. Often it's just coming from, you know, I'm, I'm not speaking from an area of personal expertise. I'm speaking from the fact that I've seen what they're going through multiple times and I can point to other case studies and then I can help them again, back to this idea of a decentralized brain. I can help them plug into the people that represent nodes of expertise in those specific areas. I think that that lends itself well to a, to a later stage investor. So I think like certainly that skill set is a critical piece of just like, what are you actually good at? You have to understand that and I think there are a lot of investors that maybe are not as good at the thing that they should be good at at the stage they invest in. Um, and everybody needs to have that sort of reflection of their own. But I think in addition to skill and capabilities, the other aspect is what I what I described, which is passion. Like, what, what are you specifically as an investor passionate about? Um, because ultimately, you can have a skill in something, but if you're not passionate about it, you're never going to be that effective. And so for me, it was a combination of finding what are the areas that I think I'm actually good at but also just what am I excited about? And then the fact that I'm excited about has made it to the point where, you know, for the last seven years, every day I get up and I'm not, I'm not worried or anxious about my work. I'm excited to dig into the specific problems that folks have because I'm passionate about it. Yeah. You mentioned recognizing these case studies, you know, from deal to deal and then plugging into nodes of expertise, a term I now love, Kyle, I'm most definitely going to have to steal that one. <laughs> but um, is this pattern recognition at its finest or is there some, you know, innate characteristic that 
a given investor is almost grown up with to actually operate at this level? The term pattern recognition is one that I think gets it gets a lot of traffic in the venture world. Um, but I have found that a lot of people use it in a few different ways and it means a few different things. And so I think that in one way people say, you know, I have pattern recognition for what a good founder looks like. And so I can, I can pick a founder regardless of sort of external details. I know what a good founder looks like because I can pattern recognize to, Oh, this is exactly what, you know, so-and-so looked like at, at this stage or, or whatever. I think that that is, um, I think it's naive, like in my mind, like I've read enough behavioral psychology books to know that um, like our own internal biases and mental heuristics uh, can leave us pretty exposed to our own brains. And so I think just this idea that like I have this innate, you know, power in my brain to look at something and say, mm, this is this is it. This is the, the real deal. I think that's uh, largely naive. The way that I think pattern recognition is sort of accurately applied to venture is more so an understanding of like first, second, third level effects of specific activities. Because I think if you look at something and you say, oh, I saw company A do this thing and they did it really well, you should do that thing. And then you step back and you're like, well, wait a minute, that was an enterprise software company. We're a you know consumer uh, app company or whatever. Like it's very different. The ability to, you know, and that's like a very simple example, but there's a lot of complexity in understanding like, well, listen, is this a company where the same playbook and the same people and the same market at the same point in time with the same preferences for technology and the same budget area, like are all of those things accurately reflected in this situation as they were in this situation that I'm trying to pattern recognize to? And the better that you get at understanding the first and second and third factors of, of sort of impacted variables, then I think that there is pattern recognition that can be powerful in that. To be able to say, well, look, if you look at this company, here are the six or seven reasons why what they did is relevant to what you're doing and can be learned from. Um, there's a really good, so in the book, The Founders About PayPal that came out recently, they talk about this where you look at some of the playbooks that PayPal executed, things like being able to embed um, their their sort of payments checkout experience. Um, and you look at like YouTube in the early days and their emphasis on making YouTube one of the most embeddable media forms on the Internet. And that still persists to today. But that's a playbook that um, sort of, you know, was crafted at PayPal. And because they were able to identify, hey, this is relevant, this is you know similar to what we saw at PayPal, we can execute on this playbook. But that playbook would have been disastrous in other areas, right? And so the better you get at understanding those variables, the, the better you are at pattern recognizing. And I think that the more companies I've seen, the better I've gotten at that. Yeah, I really like that idea of you know understanding first, second, third order effects. I think it's absolutely critical. Um, and I think a great quote that, I love uh, that very much surrounds this topic, Kyle, is one by Thomas Edward Lawrence, or better known as Lawrence of Arabia. And he says that nine-tenths of tactics are certain and taught in books, but the irrational tenth is like the kingfisher flashing across the pool. And that is the test of leaders, or in this case, Kyle, investors. Um, so I, I, that's definitely something that, that I can get behind. You know, 
it can't all be teached. It definitely has to be sharpened through the reps. And I think that ties in very nicely to, to that topic we were just chatting on. I guess propelling the conversation a little further, I know when a given individual invests at a later stage, it is often viewed as less risky, quote unquote, than supporting early stage startups, say from pre-seed to A. What are the merits and drawbacks you've discovered throughout your career operating at this level? One of the interesting topics that I think is under discussed in venture is this idea of risk management. And I think that having, especially the time that I spent at CO2, hedge funds are much more thoughtful about risk management. I think venture, venture investors sometimes get it's sometimes a strength and it's sometimes a weakness. On the weakness side, they sometimes get lured into a false sense of security where, hey, this is a 10-year journey. Everything works itself out over the course of 10 years. And that just isn't true. With hedge funds, because you're exposed to a um, hyperactive market, you're constantly evaluating how much risk exposure you have to different things and different variables and, and how quickly you can be impacted by negative variables. So I thought I've thought a lot about risk management since having worked at Co2, and now today it shapes a lot of the way that I think about investing. I think that the idea that later stage investing is less risky than um, venture investing, like in a, in simplest terms, that is true. That's why growth funds have a typically have a lower return expectation than venture funds. Where a typical venture, you know, like a very standard venture fund, early, early stage seed, you know, series A stuff, they're looking for 10x returns. Like they're, they're sort of, that's their bar of, can this company be a 10x return? Growth investors are often looking for sort of 5x returns. And it, and it ebbs and flows depending on the profile of the investor, the profile of the companies and, and things like that. But in simplest terms, it's accurate that later stage investing is less risky. I think that what people get wrong about that, though, is that there's very few risks. And it's not that there's fewer risks in later stage investings. It's that the risk, um, like the risk surface area shifts. And so in the early days, you have things like go to zero risk, right? Where it's like, what are the odds of this company just absolutely disappears? Once a company is later stage, that's usually much more rare, right? You have a lot of companies that have been around for a long time. I mean, I was a, I was a very loyal Evernote user for a long, long time. And Evernote's been around as a company for a really long time. Like companies, once they reach a certain point, they very rarely disappear. You see the flash in the pan sort of, you know, companies shut down. And often it's because those companies were never actually that big to begin with. Maybe they just raised a lot of money and hired a lot of people, but they never actually became a scaled company at a certain scale, it becomes much less likely that a company just disappears, right? They might shift profile and, and not, you know, focus on hyper growth or anything. But so like that go to zero risk is much lower at the later stages. Also, I think that to some extent, I wouldn't say that it goes away, but I think founder risk is, I mean, almost just the number one thing, kind of most uh, important thing at the earliest stages, because you're completely dependent on their ability to to be a wizard and bring something into existence from nothing. The later you go, it's not that that founder risk goes away. If your founder is not high quality or if they can't scale, that risk still exists, but you can start to distribute that risk to a broader team risk. And so you start to think about, well, on the go-to-market side, do we have sales and marketing leaders and what's the risk of their failure? And on the product and engineering side, we have leaders that can sort of distribute some of that risk. So I think that in large part, the risk just shifts um, and I think for growth investors, one of the things that they sort of got wrong over the last year or two 
is the idea that like, you know, you got so optimistic in the earliest stages and you saw these sky high valuations that you thought, well, there's always going to be another, the, the sort of risk shift will take place further, further down the, the line. And that's just not reality. Like if at, at some point you reach a situation as a company where you have to face the reality of, Hey, it's just much, you know, it's the law of large numbers. It's just harder and harder to grow and therefore harder and harder to have even larger outcomes and things like that. Yeah, I think definitely continuing that vein, Kyle, you know, one thing that definitely changed uh, in 2022, <clears throat> um, at least, you know, latter half of 2021 is, for example, Tiger Global, right? Their focus within the fundraising lifecycle, they totally shifted gears away from late stage startups and pre-IPO towards very much an early stage. And I know in terms of that late stage com- composition that formed their portfolio, it was, you know, massively um, massively up. Um, so, you know, how are we seeing this normalization now um, teeter out within within the venture market? You know, some of these crossover funds coming in, uh, are we going to see everyone return to their places or do you think people are here to stay? Again, I think this goes back to some of the stuff that I've written about where each firm is on the hook to dictate their own strategy and their own sort of... Um, you know, right to exist, if you will. So I think each firm is different. I mean, even, you know, when I was at Kotu and after, a lot of people like to bucket Kotu and Tiger into the same same bucket. But at the, at the end of the day, every firm is different. Every firm has different priorities and different return profiles, things like that. And so in terms of what those firms will do longer term, I think it's harder to say because it, it will all be dictated by how they want their firm to evolve. And, and certainly firms evolve over time. Um, so it's harder to say exactly what an individual firm will do. In general, when I look at later stage firms um, and folks who have made these investments, I think it's less a function of, oh, later stage companies are, you know, are, are sort of dead or it's, there's no opportunity to invest there. I don't think that's true. I think that a lot of the like shutdown and activity at the later stages is less a function of um, definitive, like, you know, there's, there's just nothing to be done here and more uh, a sort of like hesitation of uncertainty. So I think that just because we still don't really, I mean, even today, we don't really know from a macroeconomic perspective, we don't know if we're, you know, if this is, if we're close to the bottom, if there's still a lot more room to go, we just don't know. And so because of that uncertainty, it's really difficult to be able to, to sort of um, think about private companies in relation to that macroeconomic picture when it's so uncertain. And so rather than effectively try and predict the future, a lot of those folks have just said, it's just too difficult. We'll we'll just wait and we'll see what happens. And when we start to feel like things normalize, then we can reevaluate and we can say, okay, feels like this is sort of the new normal. And here's what companies that generate X hundreds of millions of revenue look like and can be valued at and what multiples look like and things like that. And then that dictates our return. And can we invest in a company at a particular price and generate a return or, or can't, or can't we, you know? Um, so I think a lot of it is more so like timely uncertainty than it is, uh, you know, definitive strategy. What would then be your biggest learning from your time in growth investing before contrary? After looking at so many different companies at so many different stages and scales and things like that, <clears throat> I think that the, the lesson that I hope to never forget and to never take into account is to appreciate how long the journey is. 
like you look at some companies that you, you know, had skepticisms of or, or companies that you thought just could go to the moon and realize the, the intense sort of gravitational effect that exists in growing a company. Like it's, it's so difficult. It's so rare to be able to build a hyperscaling company that the odds are just so astronomical you have to be able to be realistic and be able, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think that a lot of firms that have sort of gotten deeper into uh, later stage investing, they do similar amounts of, of due diligence at those stages that they would do in a earlier stage company. But the earlier stage company just doesn't have a lot of that data to dig into, to understand the trends and things like that. I think one of the things that I'm happy about is that, you know, deep due diligence has been out of vogue for the last year or two. And I'm excited for, you know, I, I certainly don't want to waste founders' times, but I think that there is a need to be able to dig in and fully understand a company and their economics and, and how they can grow, what they're, you know, all these different, there's so many different sort of things to look at from a diligence perspective. I'm excited to return to that being more normal because I think that the number one lesson is that, like, there there is that downward pressure that makes it difficult to scale a company. And so if you're really going to believe that a company, I mean, I can't tell you the number of of basically models that I had to build over the last three or four years that where I'd say, Hey, this company, this valuation can work if this company can get to a billion dollars of revenue. And it's like, how many companies have gotten to a billion dollars of revenue? Very few. And so the opportunity to be more realistic and say, what does the opportunity look like for this company? That is a critical sort of reality check that later stage investors need to do and, and should be doing and should have been doing and probably didn't do a good enough job doing over the last couple of years, but that I think will be more common now. Yeah, I think, look, anything in life worth having is achieved through compound interest, whether that's relationships, capital, you know, startup growth, there, there absolutely is a need to dig in there, Kyle. My question then from this is, What's your must-ask question to a founder when looking into diligence before an investment? So I do think that the first question you have to answer is, is do you want to invest? Yes or no? And I, think that, I do think that those questions are less nickel and dimey in terms of, well, walk me through exactly your margin profile or exactly your retention or things like that. Like the, the decision of as to whether or not you want to invest I think is rarely made or broken off of those um, sort of minute details. So I think the first layer is making that decision. Do we want to invest? And for contrary, the number one focus at contrary, I mean, we talk very much about being a people centric investment firm. The whole thesis of what we do is to identify the sharpest people as early as possible and then support them relentlessly throughout their career. And identifying those people early often means that we identify them even before they ever start a company. And so as much as we're thinking about, do we want to invest in this, in this specific company, we're even thinking before they start a company, would we want to invest in this person? That's often a bar for us of when we think about the, the best people in our community, it's would we invest in, in almost any company they started because we think so highly of them. So we're very people-centric in that regard. So that's number one, is focusing on very much on that person. And then the second piece broader than that is understanding a company's ability to become what we affectionately refer to as the talent vortex. This idea that it's not just a company that, hey, we can make some good money and there's a big market and we're going to hire, you know, a couple folks here and there. This is a company that is set on not only having a massive ambitious plan, but also focused on hiring the very best people. 
um, and building a talent vortex of their own of, of folks who are going to be great, who are going to great, you know, get a great experience, but then also go on to do great things elsewhere. And we want to be plugged into those vortexes. So that, those are the big things that we look for in terms of thinking like, is this a, a company and a team that we want to be working with? The second piece of that then extends, I think, more so to your question of like, within a diligence process, it's what are the questions that you're asking and, and things like that. And I, I think that the biggest thing that I focus on is understanding the economic engine of the company. Like what it, at its very core, this is a company that takes in inputs, whether it's cash or, or human time and, and effort and lines of code and things like that, you know, partnerships, whatever. It takes in inputs and it generates outputs and which is things, everything from customer value all the way to like, how is that customer value monetized and the cash that comes in and things like that. Understanding that economic engine. I think that there's a lot to be said about people sort of underestimating the necessity of the inputs in that economic engine. And you look at that in a lot of cases where you have many industries that have been fueled by what people refer to as like VC subsidies, where if you take those away, if you take massive in, you know, inflows of capital out, does the economic engine still work? And like the, the whole point of venture capital is to be able to kickstart that engine, um, which is really critical. But it's to kickstart the engine, not run the engine. Venture is never was never meant to be the fuel um, that sort of you know runs this engine for its lifetime. Uh, it's meant to be that kickstart. And so I think that I spend a lot of time with my companies thinking about what are the inputs and the outputs of your economic engine, and and how long lasting are they? Yeah, it's so great, really, to break it down to the core. What are the fundamental attributes, the fundamental value that is being derived by these given individuals, the pertinent problem that they are solving and ultimately building up from there. Uh, I think it's so important to, <laughs> well, in quite telling to, to the name of this podcast, cut through the noise, at least from a surface level, Kyle, and dive into that core. What are the core functions of the operation and make those informed decisions from there? I know Contrary has definitely built a unique model around building a lifelong platform to invest in a person even before they start a company. Is there a process around this to locate and track these individuals? Yeah, so we have, at Contrary, we have um, about 19 people full-time. And only, you know, five or six of us are investors. The rest of the folks on the team are focused on talent, community, events, engineering, data science. There, there's a broad swath of, of categories that we're focused on. Because at the end of the day, Contrary thinks of itself very much as building a product. And the product is, the, is how high quality this community can be and how, how closely aligned and supportive we can be of the folks within the community. So that's a big focus for us. In terms of that process, I think that there's sort of two pieces. There's the signals that we look for and then the process by which we, um, you know, sort of go about um, identifying those folks. So on the signal front, we certainly, our big focus is on people, number one, I think that have demonstrated themselves to have this um, sort of high ramp in their careers, even, even very early, even in college, the fact that they've gone out and they've demonstrated their own uh, sort of self-driven 
uh, hustle and independence to go find opportunities and, and learn about different things. And whether it's internships they've done or programs they've worked with or things they've built themselves or whatever, you're just constantly looking for that high, um, you know, that, that just significant slope. And then the second piece of it that we think a lot about is uh, identifying folks that are going to be able to, um, I'd say like almost like blossom under the community that we offer, right? There's, there's a, there's sort of different types of people. And there are some people that are more capable of taking um, help and support from a community like contrary and making the most of it. And those that maybe have a harder time doing that. And that's a big focus for us is people that are able to, to take that in and whatever opportunities they get and make the most of it. And then in terms of how we identify those people and, and sort of the processes that we've built, I mean, I like to think that we've spent, um, you know, there, there's very few firms that have built out as uh, kind of robust and technical of a team as we have just in terms of like building out products and thinking about this, not as a group of venture investors that sort of trust their gut and go with what they think, but it's a group of people that are building products and services for a very specific group of people and trying to identify the absolute best, you know, of the next generation of founders. Yeah, totally. I really like that. And look, Contrary is focused on early high conviction investing. And you joined back in May this year to build out the later stage practice. How does conviction vary from an early stage, Kyle, to a growth stage? I think fundamentally, it's the same core threads that you're looking for. And so, again, I mentioned this idea of, of founder and sort of both our affinity with founders and, and how we evaluate them, as well as the founder risk that exists for any company. I think that regardless of the stage, that is a, that is a critical piece of the evaluation. Is, is this a person that can, that can, again, build that engine that can be long lasting? So there's a continuous focus on people, regardless of the stage that we're investing in. And I'd say that's even more so at, contrary than any firm that I've worked at, where we're, because we're so people centric, Regardless of the stage, we spend a lot of time evaluating the types of, of sort of talent that these companies are attracting and, and that are building them. Um, I'd say the things that change for us, you know, from the earliest stages to the later stage, at the earliest stage, often, you know, there are, you acknowledge that ideas can change a lot, right? When you, there's, there's all these famous examples of, um, you know, what companies were originally and how they transformed into what they are today and how they stumble on those things. And so at the earliest stages, we focus more on, are we identifying a person that we strongly believe can build something, you know, meaningful, even more so than the idea, right? The, obviously, we evaluate the idea and we, we sort of help, you know, a lot of times we help folks think through their ideas and evaluate the, the market opportunity and stuff like that. But it, it's sort of secondary to the person. At the later stages, you have to be very critical of like, what is the opportunity that is actually being tackled right now? It's, it's much harder to turn a ship once that, shirt, that, once that ship has, you know, 30, 40, 50 people, some customers that are dependent on it, some integrations, they built some partnerships. All of those things add complexity in making sharp turns. Even if startups are more nimble than big companies, it, it just makes it, you know, relatively harder. And so you have to be very deliberate about evaluating not only the people, which is critical, but also the core, you know, idea that's getting built up and, and what they're tackling. And is it meaningful? And is it the right approach? Do you believe that the market's going to respond most favorably to the way they're doing things? And, and things like that, I'd say, takes on a, a new meaning. Yeah, I really, really like that. And I think the given certainty and continuum across stages is the people 
right? And that's definitely um, definitely something I I really really love. Um, they're, they're ultimately the the drivers and the change makers for the the economic opportunity of the future, Kyle. So that's um, yeah, absolutely a core function there. You raised a really interesting dichotomy in your most recent newsletter piece titled "You're the Only Investment That Matters." And if you know, if if you were to find yourself pushing for investments, not because you believe in them, but because, say, your firm's partner does. How do you overcome this misalignment? Is it a function of just having a conversation or is it something more serious? There is a difference. So a lot of folks talk about how some of the best investments that a firm has made have been um, sort of contrarian internally, right? Non-consensus bets where not everybody has bought into the same idea. Um, other firms, I think that they believe their, their consensus bets have been some of the best ones that they've made. So I think it depends on the culture of the firm in terms of, that's less to say that if you're, if you ever disagree with the people that you work with on an investment, it's not the right place for you. I don't think that is the case. I think more so the point that I'm trying to make is, um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of folks who are at some pretty prestigious firms and over and over and over again, they find themselves having to go to bat for investments that they themselves would not do, you know, if, if left to their own devices, because they don't believe in the opportunity, because they don't think the market is big enough, because they don't think the execution is good enough, because they don't feel convicted of the founder, whatever it is, you find yourself not believing in this investment, but you make it because, and you push for it because existing internal politics at a firm sort of incentivize you to do that. The more you sort of the, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours partnership model. And I think that that leads to not only not great decisions when you're, you're constantly doing things over and over again because of what other people want to do. Like you should find opportunities to be more convicted in the things that you are doing specifically. But number two, I think that it creates this um, dissatisfaction yourself. Like as an investor, the, the point that I'm trying to make in that article is this idea that at the end of the day, at the very, very end of the day, right at the end of your life, you're the only investment committee that matters. When you look back on, not, and not only the, you know, uh, not only the financial investments that you've made, but everything with your time and your family and your any power or influence you had or anything, you're going to evaluate whether or not you feel good about how you invested those resources. And so I think that like that sense of self-satisfaction is important. That doesn't mean that, you know, I, I certainly, um, at contrary, we don't always agree on the investments that we make. There's there's always debate and it's healthy and there's intellectual curiosity and, and intellectual honesty and things like that. And so it's not that you're always going to agree, but if you if you frequently as an investor find yourself making investments that you don't personally have conviction on or that you don't feel like you could honestly defend to someone else, that's probably not a great place for you to stay long term. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, you know, natural natural sort of contrarian takes in, within a firm, you know, some people believing it, others slightly skeptical, you know, how is contrary ultimately capitalizing on the trends that are driving the future, Kyle? Well, one of the things that we say is that as a firm, we strive to be generalist and open-minded, even more generalist and open-minded than a lot of firms because this whole ethos is we identify the sharpest people and then we support them relentlessly throughout their career, it would be a little bit on the nose of us to say, you know, we support those sharp people as long as they're building B2B SaaS. And that's all we want to do is B2B SaaS. But if they're solving a B2B SaaS, we'll sign us up. I think that what we strive to do 
is to be able to tap into these really powerful ecosystems of very sharp people who want to solve meaningful problems and then try and understand the problems and, and, and why they're attracted to those problems. We just made an investment. It's, it's not, we haven't announced it yet, but it's in a climate tech company. Um, and the investments that we make in the climate space, that's one of, you know, we do a survey every year of the folks in our community and what they're most excited about building and, and climate again and again jumps to the top of, of as one of the areas that um, folks right now are, you know, most excited to build in because they acknowledge that it's a meaningful problem. And so rather than saying, well, it's not a space that we've invested in historically. And so we're going to focus on these areas that we've invested in historically. We're going to trust the fact that we've identified really sharp people and that those really sharp people want to go build solutions to specific problems in that space. And, you know, we, we qualify those, but ultimately we trust the people that we, uh, that we back. Yeah, no, totally, totally true there. And I do want to touch <laughs> on this concept of being helpful, right, Kyle? And it, it's a common meme in VC, I guess, is this mythical value add. You touched on it in your newsletter piece at the beginning of this year, the productization of venture capital. You said that that very few investors could actually give you an answer to the question, you know, what is your differentiated offering? And why is it becoming harder and harder to differentiate brands? And how do you advise individuals who want to go out and raise some money stand out? There are two jokes uh, that I think about in relation to this this meme. Do tell um, both, Carl. Do the, tell both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the first one is, um, so people say that uh, within your marketing budget, um, half of your marketing budget is wasted. You just don't know which half. It's even more than half, I would say, probably 80% of... VCs are worthless. We just don't know which are in the 80%. Um, and the second bucket, the second bucket is this, uh, um, I think it was a Logan Bartlett tweet that he had was that he talks about how venture firms just constantly talk about how we invest in companies with, you know, massive competitive moats. And then when you turn around and ask a venture fund, what their moat is, they say, Oh, it's largely brand. <laughs> it's largely this, this sort of fickle brand of how people think about us. And it's, it's like, it's just so ironic, right? When you think about, Venture funds, I, I often refer to venture funds as one of the most under-innovated models that exists in, in a world drenched in innovation of people trying to change things and build new technology. Venture is largely the same as it was 50, 60 years ago. And so I, th I think that the opportunity ex that exists, it's twofold. Like I think that any firm, whether it's an established firm trying to reinvent itself or a brand new firm that's just getting off the ground, I think every firm needs to be better at, I, I talk about, you know, a lot of folks talk about product-led growth in software. I think there needs to be product-led venture firms of what is your product and what is the value prop and what, what's the sort of, in the, in the words of Clayton Christensen, what's the job to be done that you're solving for your founders? And if there are lots of alternatives to you as a solution to their problems, you have to ask, how can we be, what can we be the very best at? Um, I'm reminded, I'll have to send it to you in the, in the show notes. It's, um, but Kevin Gao, a friend of mine, uh, you know, often reminds me of this tweet. Uh, it's a real vision tweet that talks about the early days of Lux, um, Lux Capital. And some of the things that they did, one of the things that they did is they really focus on, they said, hey, the world is really noisy and crowded. What can we do? 
And actually, surprisingly, two of the things um, that came that, that they sort of excelled at, especially in these areas that were, you know, deep tech, hard sciences often required, you know, some government funding and things like that. Number one, they spent a lot of time and effort building a research arm where they were going super deep into new categories of, of technology and, and biotech and, and stuff like that. And the second piece was they spent a lot of time really understanding uh, how, you know, the lobbying ecosystem and how they can most effectively go to bat for their companies as they strive to, to sort of, you know, exist in these really complex, highly regulated ecosystems. Those are the two things they identified that they said, hey, we could be the best at this thing because it's built for a very specific pe- person. It's built for a very specific type of founder who needs these two things. It may not be the right thing for everyone, and that's okay. Um, I think that's another area where a lot of firms today are sort of struggling is that they want to be everything to everyone. I think it's okay to want to do a lot of things, but the more effectively you can, you know, if you're selling a product and you said, we want to sell our product to humans. And it's like, that's a really difficult target market to understand and and to study. But if you say very specifically, this is the target audience that we want to go after and, and be able to most effectively serve, then you're more able to curate your product around that particular type of founder. And so the advice that I'd give for everyone who's trying to set themselves apart in a in an increasingly noisy world of venture funds and corporate VCs and all types of different, you know, different folks, I think the number one thing is to be able to give a really crystal clear answer to what is your product, what is the value prop, and what is the job that a founder would hire your money to do. I just have to make a note of that one because that's Absolutely a highlight that I know a lot of people need to hear, Kyle. So that's uh, right on the money there. <laughs> and I also really like that example with Lux Capital. So you'll definitely have to send that tweet through after the show. Um, why are we then seeing this shift in VC, you know, from large monolithic brands to now the individual, right? Things are getting personal. People form affinity to people. Why are things going the way they're going, Kyle? In my mind, and I've wanted to revisit, so one of my most popular articles that I wrote was called The Unbundling of Venture Capital. And it was this idea that you're describing of sort of shifting from monolithic brands to individuals. I've wanted to revisit this because this has come up as I've talked about this concept more. I think that the biggest reason is that in a, uh, you know, I think you can describe our day to day as internet drenched, right? There's just so much of our life that is, is powered and influenced by the internet. In a pre-internet drench, well, not even a pre-internet world, but just, you know, even, even 2008, 2009, you know, pre the internet being a huge part of everybody's day-to-day life, brands represented a shorthand. Like it was just difficult to, to really get a good, you know, pool of information that you felt comfortable with, that you felt like you had a really good sense of what is this thing do and who are these people and things like that. And so people used brand established brands as a shorthand. In the days of, you know, the the internet or the metaverse or whatever you want to call it, that shorthand is sort of in, unnecessary. Like there are, it's certainly still present in a lot of different decisions, but in something as sort of highly versatile and and uh, and decentralized as venture, like all the different companies that are getting started, all of the people that have capital, angel investors, venture funds, everything. There's so many different people solving so many different problems that require so many different perspectives that that brand has sort of fallen down on the job that you can't use that brand anymore as this, you know, to be as effective of a shorthand. 
And so instead, the way that the internet has sort of trained us to evaluate, it's understanding what are the ideas and the, and uh, Jeff Lewis would describe himself as a vibe capitalist. It's what are the vibes instead? Like we spend so much more time making decisions based on the vibes that we get from specific people and, and whether or not we resonate with them, whether or not they're in our, uh, in our tribe. Um, that's how we make decisions now. And so within venture, you're starting to see that where it's not just, and I think it's less, you know, it's not even just about, oh, all of venture capital is going to be unbundled into solo capitalists. I think you're still going to have big firms with big brands that throw their weight around and that's not going to go away. But I think what is happening is that that, that vibe centricity is becoming more prevalent. And so when founders look to go see who they want to raise from, they want to know who they vibe with. Who are the people whose whose values and culture and and thinking and feeling, you know, how much does that resonate with them? I mean, it's crazy, but you know, I I was a early user and early angel investor in Rome Research, and still to this day, I'm a daily active user. I love Rome. I love Tools for Thought. I love building my own personal, you know, second brain. The number of investments that I've made, angel investments or or even firm investments that have nothing to do with note-taking or, or network thought or anything. The number of investments I've made where it's just because me and the founder bond over the fact that we both love Rome, like that vibe is real. And you can take that to the bank because those people want to work with me because they are using the fact that I like a certain tool or do a certain thing. That's now their shorthand for, oh, this is someone I want to work with. Not the brand on the front door, but the vibes of the person that they're working with. Yeah, this is a really interesting vein that I know almost deserves its own conversation. I'd love to sort of follow that up with another question and ask you, Kyle, look, how much of this has to do with a mistrust in the media now? You know, we've we've seen large brands come up, rise, and ultimately that be everyone knows through newspaper, radio, television, and now the internet – Versus, look, they have an agenda, they have mouths to feed, people to pay. The individuals now are ultimately providing a lot of truth and people are truth seekers. You know, how is the media skewing this? The thing that jumps to my mind is, you know, I I don't know that it's um, as deliberate and like maniacal as a lot of people think. Like, I don't think that by and large, the institutions that we've trusted in our lives are, are actively going about to, to screw people. Maybe some of them are, maybe a lot of them are, maybe I'm naive, but I don't think that most of the time it's, it's so deliberate. I think that what people have, have tried to do is invent new, new business models in, in the world in which we live. And so I think about things like, you know, there are a few, um, I don't know. I can think of a few tweets that people have sent out that where it's like, you know, Hey, if you want to be on our list of the, of the 10 best, uh, you know, prop tech companies to work for, just pay us a hundred thousand dollars or $50,000 or whatever. And we'd love to feature you on our list. And it's like, what, like, what? like I, I trusted those lists and it's basically just going to the highest bidder. And for those people, they think of that as, hey, that's just a revenue channel. That's just an opportunity to use our influence and we should be paid for our influence. And so let's monetize that influence. But when the structure of incentives and influence is set about in such a way that like, you're probably not getting the best information. You're probably getting whoever paid the top dollar. 
that's when people start to lose trust in that stuff is that once they realize that what they see for themselves as a really critical decision. So, I mean, bringing it back to venture, I'm trying to decide whose money I should take. And that that's going to dictate the people that I have to work with for 10 plus years on one of the most important things that you've ever built, which is this company that you've created. That's a really personal and critical decision. And to feel like that decision has been influenced, not by proper information, but by somebody else's bottom line, that's when you lose trust and you start to, and you start to question. And so I think that's what has pushed people to rely on their own shorthands that they've developed, which is, you know, the, the vibes and reputations and, and sort of word of mouth that, that individuals have, as opposed to relying on what, you know, larger institutions would like to tell you. Where do you now see the future of venture heading emerging from this period of macro uncertainty? Everyone, so it's funny, my, I mean, my writing has largely revolved around venture and the inner workings of how venture is described. And so I, this is probably the most common question that I get from folks is, so, so, so what, how, what does this all mean? How does it all shake out? And I think that, I, I think a lot about um, this other sort of quote unquote portfolio idea that I've always wanted to explore that I've not spent enough time in my life exploring is this idea of, um, uh, historical futurism, the idea of like, you can learn a lot by looking back at what people thought five, 10, 20, 50 years ago, and how those people predicted the future, and what they were right about, what they were wrong about, and why. And it teaches you a lot about people's mentality. And, and you can look at the limitations of why maybe some of those, those predictions haven't come true. But I think a lot about in, um, in the movie Back to the Future 2, uh, you know, they go, they go into what at, at the time was the future now is, is the past into 2015 when they've got flying cars and, and stuff like that. But one of the things that's so jarring about watching that movie today is a dramatic overemphasis on the fax machine. Like the fax machine was brand new. It was the, it was the new thing in the eighties or whenever. And so people thought that, Hey, I mean, this is so new. It's going to be such a critical part of our, of our lives in the future. We're going to have lots of them. And the reality is that like the fax machine lasted only a short time before it was replaced by something totally different. And so I think that the mistake that you can make today is by taking something that is new, right? So you look at like whether it's sort of hyperactive, price insensitive uh, crossover firms or solo capitalists leading rounds or whatever. You can take the new thing and extrapolate it into the future, but I think you'll be most of the time wrong. And so rather than trying to extrapolate from a specific trend, I focus on the, the whole picture. And so people will say, oh, is it, you know, is it the crossovers? Is it the solo capitalists? What's the most important trend that's going on? Is it crypto? Is it Web3? Is that going to replace venture? And I think the reality is it's none of those things individually. It's all of those things collectively. But if I had to sum it up to one specific trend, I would say that the thing that is going to define the next 20 years of, uh, of venture capital it is going to be change. There is going to be disruption. There is going to be more and more. It's not, it, you know, there's a, there's a shift going on right now where now in this, in sort of, you know, an economic downturn, VCs are starting to feel more, more power than they've had over the last year or two. But I don't think that that is going to be, it's not going to be back to, you know, business as usual. I think that there has been enough disruption in venture to set it on a different path. And that was one of the reasons I was so excited to join Contrary is I wanted to be a part of, uh, a model that was that was shaping that that change i love that yeah being at the face of change that you intend to see on the world i'm all for that kyle and listen to wrap things up from 
the main body of the pod here. I know you're a big family man. What does your perfect day look like? So um, I, my son has been, I have a six-year-old, a three-year-old and a, and a new baby. My six-year-old has been getting really into Legos lately. Um, and so right now, the best part of the day is waking up and finding out, you know, what is the new thing that he's built? When I think about the perfect day for me, honestly, I mean, I think that the reason going back to the story that I told about the West Wing and this idea of I want to be the person that that people can rely on, that a founder can rely on. Um, for me, there's two parts of a perfect day. The first one is that I have been able to be a really valuable resource to someone that I've been able to help them solve a problem. My favorite thing to get to hear is to say, this has been really helpful. I'm really excited to follow up with you. Like those opportunities to have been able to be useful in, in connecting people or whatever is, is always exciting for me. And so in any, you know, in any aspect that I can do that, I'm excited for that. But for me, that also extends into my family life. Like when I think about what have I done for my kids and what have I done for like, what, what about this day is going to be memorable for them? I always get excited when my son can point to, you know, um, remembering when I took him to the Lego store, when we rode on a train or, or whatever, whatever little thing it is that to him, it's this huge thing. It sort of resonates the same way for me is that I want to create those, um, I don't know, like value add experiences that people remember, whether it's at work or at home. Yeah, I really like that. Well, you, you absolutely are <laughs> a valuable resource, Carl. I know you, you've, you've been truly, truly helpful to a lot of people. Um, and I really, really like that, like that idea. Now, I do have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Now, last week we had Jamin Bull partner at Altimeter Capital. Their question is, if you only had one question to interview a candidate, what would it be? I love this. Um, there's a there's actually a really good thread. So one of the my partners that I worked with at Code2, Matt Mazio, he had a great thread about this probably two years ago. Whereas this exact idea is what's the one question that you would ask to understand how someone thinks? And it's kind of the same thing in, in the interview. Um, for me, I think that... Um, for everyone, I try and get to a sense of like, I don't know, I come back to this word values all the time. Like what are people's values? What are their core ideas? And so for me, I think it's, and maybe this is cheating by using and, but it's, it's what matters to you and why. Like, I think for me, that has always resonated as the question that I most, that I, that I want people to answer because I want to understand what really matters to people. And actually I have found that people who, answer it with platitudes are often like the people who've thought least about it. Like the more you have, the, the more detailed and specific and surprising your answer is, the more you can tell that like you've really thought about what is it that matters to me? Like when I wake up in the morning, what am I trying to accomplish? What's the end state that I'm trying to get to? Um, so I think that's a big, um, yeah, I think that's a big piece of, uh, of how I, how I would interview people and, and try and understand how they think. Absolutely. Yeah. Understanding thought process, how people think and ultimately why they think, you know, well, what's the rationale and then in turn, where will that take themselves and also the the company? Yeah, really, really fascinating. <clears throat> well, listen, Paul, we have come to the end now, um, but I've so enjoyed this one. I think it could have gone in many, many different directions in terms of depth and rabbit holes, but I'm, uh, I'm glad we managed to shape it and uh, hopefully... 
provide a little bit of value to uh, to some of the listeners out there. So really glad we got to do it. Yeah, this has been super fun. Thanks for having me.